Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Rick, I'll call it. You know, uh, listening to the promises read. Uh, one of the things that happened to me early on was I got active. I, uh, not because I was trying to be good or work a program. I, I started doing 12-step work because it helped me. There was nothing noble about this. It was pure self-interest. It wasn't selfish because it wasn't without concern for others. But I, no question that I felt a relief almost immediately. And... Uh, uh, you know, I, I knew I was going after this. I wasn't going to come in here and play around and just kind of half measure this thing. I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you a couple things that happened to me uh, along the way. You know, most of my talk will probably be about what's happened to me because I think that's what's really been significant for me. Uh, but I do want to tell you a little bit about uh, how I was raised or how I grew up or how I didn't grow up. Maybe it'd be a better way to put it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I grew up on the south side of Minneapolis. I'm the youngest of five, and uh, I've got a brother three years older, a sister six years older, another brother nine years older, and one ten years older. So I wasn't close to my older siblings. I, I hardly knew my older brothers, really. I, they were like adults, you know, and they were having family meetings, you know, all the time talking to me about why I'm acting the way I'm acting as time went on. But uh, uh, <laughs> but I was in trouble a lot as a kid, and... Uh, uh, both my parents are drunks. My dad was drunk all the time when I was a kid. So I didn't know him very well. I, 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 you know, my mother I was relatively close to as a very young kid, but I was primarily raised by my sister Anne from about the time I was, I suppose, eight years old on. My mother was working nights. My dad was drunk. He was working for the post office, sorting mail between Chicago and Minneapolis, and he used to run the mail on the trains. So he'd be gone for a week at a time, then he'd be home and, uh, for a week. And when he was home, he was drunk. I didn't see much of him, wasn't around him much. And when he was gone, you know, I, I just had very little experience with this man. So I, I wasn't close at all with him. Uh, I was close to my brother Dan and my sister probably and my family mostly. So when I came through, the family had, had pretty much dissolved. My, uh, my uh, dad got sober when I was 11 years old. He never drank again. And, uh, you know, that's, I started sniffing glue that's when I was 11. So he stops, I start. And that's kind of the way it was. But, you know, I, there were some experiences that happened early on in my family, just to give you an idea of what uh, my family was like. Uh, you know, I remember my dad building a, you know, we grew up in a one-bedroom house in South Minneapolis. And, and it was a small place. And, you know, five kids and two adults. And there was a bad expansion upstairs, you know, straight up and down stairs in the back of the house. And it wasn't good. It was just a very small 750-square-foot bungalow. But we used it. It was not a big deal. You know, I didn't think anything of it. I, 
Uh, I didn't even know I had a bad childhood until I started listening to people <laughs> later on in my life. See, it's, uh, I'm serious about that. I don't say that to be funny. I mean, literally, I didn't experience life badly. I was very happy as a kid. I had a lot of fun as a child. But, uh, you know, I, I remember my dad was uh, building a bedroom down in the basement. <clears throat> and we were wondering who was going to get the bedroom. See, one girl in the family, it's got to be Ann. She's going to get the bedroom, and we're going to have to double up. And I'm the youngest, so I knew I wasn't getting it. You know, that was a given. But, uh, you know, I remember th- sitting there thinking about that and, you know, wondering what, what was going on there. And uh, it was amazing when my dad ended up down there. My mother wouldn't sleep with him anymore. It just amazed me. She, she had banished him to the basement, see. Now he's... <laughs> He's drunk, he's down in the basement. She doesn't want him upstairs, he makes a mess in the bathroom, that sort of thing. So, so it was, you know, I didn't think too much of it. So one particular time, and this is one of the, probably, I don't know if I have another memory of the whole family sitting at the kitchen table. We had an eat-in kitchen, and I happened to be facing the back door, and the uh, basement door is off to the right of the back door. And the door swings into the kitchen, and there's a long hallway down alongside the basement stairs. And we used to hang coats and stuff on it. That went back down to the bathroom. My mother had taken rope and tied, you know, clothesline, tied it around the doorknob and then wove it around the corner to a hook and then wove it back and forth like that because he's drunk and she doesn't want him upstairs. See? <laughs> so she's got him in the basement. And you hear the thing rattling. He's rattling on the door. We're eating dinner, you know, and he's, he's just hammered. And he's rattling on this door, and, and we're chuckling, you know, I'm laughing. I, could, I was probably nine years old when this happened, okay? And I, it was funny to me. It really was funny. So it, he can't get up. So we're laughing. He's down there, and my mother yells at him, get back down. You know, she's swearing at him and stuff. And they, I, they got trouble. I don't know much about it, but I know there's problems. But uh, about ten minutes go by, and I'm sitting there eating, and all of a sudden I, I, I look up, and I... You can't really tell what it is, but it looks very strange. You see the end of a saw blade come through the <laughs> the crack in the door. And he's sawing the, the... And all you see is the end of the blade, so it's just bizarre looking, you know. Looking at that, and I'm thinking, what the heck? And then he gets the ropes cut, and he swings the door open. He does his grand entrance, and he got his, he's drunk. And I mean he's hammered. He's about 5'10". Weighs about 140 pounds at this point. You know, he's been drunk for a long time. And uh, he's got this sleeveless shirt on, and he's in his underwear, you know. So he's got boxer shorts on and this sleeveless shirt. And it's like he swings his door open like, hi, you know. It's just strange. And he's got these black horn-rimmed glasses on upside down. And I, and I looked at and I just, I looked at it, I couldn't believe it. It was just like, what the heck is it? And then my mother gets up with a frying pan and goes after him with a frying pan. And my brother, I think it was Bob, the oldest one, grabbed the frying pan from her and wouldn't let her club him with it. And so that's the way it was. I didn't think too much of these things. I really didn't. I, you know, these things were funny to me. Now, another guy might need therapy for 20 years over something like that. You know, it's a, you know that's my dad. I, you know, I... But I didn't react that way to it. I really didn't. I didn't feel that for some reason. So uh, that's the way it was. Uh, those were not uncommon situations. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, after my dad got sober, he moved out. And uh, he didn't drink again. 
My mother didn't get sober. She kept drinking. She was working nights. My sister Anne's raising me. And uh, my, my, uh, probably within about a year or so of him getting sober, she bought, my dad bought the house for my mother. So they switched places. She moved into his apartment. He moved into the house, and I lived with my dad and my sister. So it's the same arrangement for me, except my dad's there, but he's not there. He's working for the post office. He's gone for a week and home for a week. When he's home, he's going to AA. When he's gone, he's gone. So my sister's raising me. That's the way it was. And she's hanging around with people, you know, and, and I, and I, that are drinking. A lot of people are drinking. They're partying. They're all 20 years old. And I'm hanging around with people six, eight years older than I am. Those are great memories. I, I have nothing but fond memories from my childhood. I really do. I, I had a lot of fun as a kid. Uh, you know, I, I remember my brother Dan, when I was a kid, making fun of me. And, and this is kind of an interesting term he used. Because I was so happy, he, he made fun of me for being overjoyed. That's <laughs> what he said. He said I was overjoyed. So, so that's... <laughs> So I, you know, I missed it. I missed all these problems somehow. I missed alcoholism. It just didn't seem to have that impact that it has on a lot of people until I started listening to people. See, that's when it started. Hey, the kid's in trouble. He's, he's stealing. He's skipping class, things like that. You know, uh, they'd have family meetings, you know, and those aren't good when they're talking about you. You know, they bring everybody together to figure out what they're going to do with you, see. And it's always a bad deal. And uh, I, <laughs> and you know, I, I heard loud and clear. I was a, I was a product of my environment, of my circumstances. Okay, I doubt that there's one thing that caused me more trouble in my life than that idea that somebody else is responsible. It's my circumstances. This is really the thing that I've had to heal from in a major, major way. The problem I had is I had society telling me it was true. Probation officers, school officials. You know, look at the terrible childhood he had. Give him a break. Look at where he comes from. This kind of stuff, see. So I, uh, I had to deal with that later on. And as I got older, I got angrier and angrier the more I listened up. And, and it's what I wanted to hear. Believe me, it ain't their fault. They were trying to help me. I know that. But I wanted to hear that because it got me out of jail sometimes. It got me out of trouble in many respects. So, but uh, it caused me a lot of problems later on in my life as time went on. You know, I... My, my mother uh, married another alcoholic. She got involved in another relationship. There was a bar called the 620 Club in Minneapolis on Hennepin Avenue. That, it became Moby Dick's, if you remember what Moby Dick's was. Okay? Well, the 620 Club, I used to go down there with my mother once in a while, and she had met this guy there. And they, they wouldn't leave you out of, the, out of the mix. See, when I was a kid, 12, 13 years old, I'd be down there with my mother. They'd make you something called a kitty cocktail. They'd mix up 7-Up and stuff like that so you could pretend, and they'd put a cherry in it so you could pretend like you were drinking with your parents. Isn't that something? Yeah. No, that's true. Absolutely true. So you could sit there, and that was sort of your training ground for getting to Alcoholics Anonymous later on. Well, she married this drunk, and he was a real alcoholic, and and she was in trouble. She was in trouble with the booze, and... uh, uh, my brother Bill, my second oldest brother Bill, who's nine years older than I am, asked my dad to get somebody to help my mother. And we all knew she had trouble. I mean, we all knew she was in major trouble. I used to go over there with my sister once in a while on the weekends, and she'd pass out in a chair, you know, at 7, 8 o'clock at night, drunk, listening to Nat King Cole and Ray Charles and all this heavy blues. 
just miserable, unhappy, you know, and all that is. It's, isn't it weird how we're drawn to that stuff, you know, when you're in the throes of it? You're drawn to the pain for some reason. And she was like that, and she was having a heck of a time. And my brother Bill was very concerned about her. And uh, I got a letter from my dad later on that talked about this, which I'll, I'll tr- if i got time, I'll read it to you. By the way, can I use your watch? Uh, I'll read it to you if, if i got some time here at the end of this. Uh, I was over there for my 15th birthday. My mother used to make me dinners on my birthdays. And uh, so I, at this point in my life, I wasn't real close to her. But, you know, it's your mother. It's It's a... So my brother Dan and I are over there, and she's drinking when we get there at noon. Her new husband can't get out of bed. He never surfaced during the course of the day, so he was drunk in the bedroom. That's the kind of relationship they had. Uh, They were married maybe about a year at this point. Uh, By the time we ate at 3 in the afternoon, she was hammered. And I did something I'd never done before. I got in her face over her drinking, and I called her a drunk. And I was angry, and I didn't like this scene, and... I mean, she was really hammered by the time we ate, and it was just a bad afternoon, you know. And uh, it had snowed real heavy that day, and we couldn't get out of there. The taxi cabs were running real late, and we sat in that negativity for about two, three hours. And it was just a bad deal. And finally that cab came, and I was so thrilled to get out of there, I couldn't believe it. Well, that night she killed herself. She committed suicide. She shot herself with her husband's handgun. He was a hunter, and he had a handgun there, and she... so. That's alcoholism. That's where this thing goes. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, my brother Bill, who had asked my dad to help my mother, and he had promised Bill he'd do that, you can imagine how he felt about that one. A lot of resentment with Bill toward my dad over the years. My brother Bill uh, died drunk, angry at his childhood, angry at his circumstances. And I had a conversation with him a week before he died. And in that conversation, he was telling me how terrible my childhood was because he was angry, see. And he was telling me that my childhood was worse than his, and he's trying to get me to pick up a resentment. And I'd resolved it. It was gone. There was nobody there to pick that one up. I had resolved it through the inventory process. And I'll share a little bit of that in a little bit with you. But uh, uh, in that conversation, he said some things to me that were very interesting to me. You know, he's... He wants me to join him in his perception. And I don't see it the same way because I've had this experience through AA. He's been around AA, you've got to understand, for about 15 years, 20 years. Not in AA, around it. You know how that is. And nothing was ever resolved. Lots of therapy. He was angry. He never got past it. I I don't know what what happened to that whole scene, but for him, he never got past it. So he's telling me how angry he was, and I don't see it the same way he does. So when you don't share the perception with someone, they get angry when you don't see it the way they do. So I thought, you know, I'll get a common ground in the Alcoholics Anonymous book. After all, he does. He has been around AA at some point. And so I said, Bill, this is what Bill Wilson wrote in the Alcoholics Anonymous book. Because I was going to tell him a story of how I resolved my own conflict. As soon as I mentioned the Alcoholics Anonymous book, here's what he did. He diverts the attention. He says, he starts to argue with me how the big book should be made gender neutral. (laughs) No, really. That's right. It's exactly what he did with it. See, and after about five minutes, see, we're off topic now. We're talking about something else. So I stopped it because I've been in Al-Anon for a long time, okay? (laughs) And I'm about 
eight years sober at this point, and I'd been in Al-Anon that long too, see. So I saw what he was doing, and I stopped him and I said, look, Bill, if you're looking for conflict and controversy in the AA literature, you'll find it. If you're looking for healing, you'll find that too. What do you want to do? You want to argue about this stuff or do you want to get well? I said, if you knew that your judgments toward our dad was hurting you, your judgmental attitude was hurting you, why would you want to keep it? You know what he said to me? Because I'm masochistic, I guess. Wow, how do you talk to that guy, huh? You can't, see? And I, I, I realized, I just said, give up, man. You're not going to convince this guy of anything. He's not ready. He's not interested in seeing anything in a new light. Well, I hung that phone up and I thought, how does this guy stay sober with all this hate in his heart? He had told me he'd been sober quite a while at that point. Found out that was a lie. A week later, he was dead. Ran his motorcycle through a brick wall. Yeah, right through the bricks at the Savoy Inn in downtown St. Paul. Hit those bricks. We got an autopsy report back, 0.15 or 1.7 alcohol content. So he was drunk, see? See, that's the problem here, is that it's very difficult to maintain any sort of sobriety with a head full of hate. I'm not saying it's impossible, because I've seen guys who've done it for long periods of time, and they don't have anything I want, I'll tell you that. It's unfortunate, but it is possible, but it's not an easy sobriety, and they're miserable, and they make everybody miserable around them. I don't want to do that. I, that's one that was not going to be my journey. I wanted to change in the worst way. So, you know, so... Uh, I, I've seen alcoholism in a lot of its uh, dimensions in my family. Uh, but, I, you know, here again, now people are talking to me. Look, give the kid a break. He comes from an alcoholic family, divorced, and now this suicide. You know, I want to tell you something that happened uh, uh, early on in my life, which illustrates something, and it illustrates my mind. I, I don't tell these stories just for the sake of humor or anything. They have a point to, for me. Uh, I was five years old. I had a little cap gun. They gave me a little cap gun with rolls of caps, little dots of gunpowder, you know, and you pull the trigger, little pop, see? I hated it. I don't like the little pop. I want the big explosion, see? So, <laughs> so I found out if you take the roll of caps out of the gun, leave it rolled up and hit it with a hammer, the whole roll goes off at once, see? Now, this is impressive if you haven't tried it. Somebody handed me a roll not long ago, and I whacked it, and I, I'm telling you, I was surprised at the amount of explosion in that. So... So I'm going through a lot of caps, and my, my mother won't buy me any more caps. We're down at the shopping center. I'm with my brother Dan. He's eight. I'm five. I see him on the shelf. My mother's off shopping somewhere. I made a conscious decision to steal him. I'm five. Don't like the little pop. Got to have the big deal. See, everything's done with enthusiasm. Seriously. I don't do anything without enthusiasm. In fact, drunks don't do anything without enthusiasm, except maybe the steps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now I need balance. No, you need to do this with enthusiasm. So we're down there, and I see him, and I grab a handful of caps, and I shove them in my pocket. And now Dan's right next to me. He's eight. Grabbed another handful of these little boxes, and I was just going to put them in my pocket, and Dan says, Rick. That guy over there saw you. So I shoved him in his pocket, and he got caught. It's a true story. He says, you know, I've been nervous around you ever since that experience. He, he told me that about ten years ago. Well, wouldn't you be? How would you like to be around a guy who's 
lying, stealing, and giving you the problem. And that, believe me, that didn't stop. You know, I got caught. That was trouble. Years later, when I was in AA, I, this probably happened 18 years ago when this, this experience, a guy came up to me after a meeting one time when I was speaking at it or something. I don't remember what the deal was. And he says, you know, I had an experience like yours when I was five. I got caught stealing, and I never stole again. Now, we're both in AA, okay? He never stole again. Not me. I went on stealing and giving the problem to somebody else. Isn't that something? How come he changed and I didn't? We both ended up in AA, so it didn't mean much. But the fact of the matter is, I went on from that point with great enthusiasm, trying to give other people the problem. Unbelievable. Didn't want to take responsibility for anything that was going on. See, that's a common theme in my life, drunk or sober, is enthusiasm. It's just the way it is. See? So what that has to do with my family, why I was like that, or my circumstances, or the events in my life, this all happened very early. Five years old, I'm like this. So it's, uh, I had this sort of a personality long before I knew about alcoholism or trouble or divorce or suicide or anything else in my family. That's just a fact. So that was my journey, and it's been, it's been that way. I, uh, you know, I, I, tell you, I tell you just quickly, I don't like to spend a lot of time on drinking. I, I, I'll tell you how I drank. I drank enthusiastically. We'd get a keg of beer, right? Eight-gallon keg. That's the right amount for four guys. <laughs> Two gallons apiece. If you don't know, that's equivalent to about 24 12-ounce cans each or bottles. This is the way we divided it. This, I don't mean this to be funny. I mean, literally, I thought this way. This is the way my mind is, see? So now you get the keg, you take it down the river, you throw it in somebody's living room, whatever. We drank out the river a lot, down the Mississippi River. And we'd take it down the hill and go down there and have a fire or whatever, and we'd drink. We'd stand around the keg, and as we drank with each other, we'd put each other down. That was the game, see? And, the, you know, you'd cut your buddies down. And those were great opportunities to tell them exactly how you felt. Oh, I'm just kidding. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I was probably more honest at those moments than at any other time in my life, you know. The honesty had come out about halfway through the keg, and pretty soon you'd be fist fighting, and you'd, honest to God, it was, it was constant like this. And people don't want you around their houses and things like that when you're like this, see. My humor's sarcastic, it's negative, and it's cutting and directed at people, see. This is the mind I had to deal with when I got sober. So I'm telling you, uh, it was just a bad scene. And all the guys I hung around with were like this. It was just the way we were. So that's, uh, uh, that's just the way it was. You know? And, and when, you, when you've got a negative mind like that, you look for things to make you feel better. And, of course, you'll find a woman or a man or whatever your circumstances are. And... Uh, and, I, of course, Pam and I got together in my early 20s, and we had uh, an 11-year relationship and two kids. And, uh, and I remember thinking that, you know, I liked her look. She was a great-looking woman, and uh, this is not Pam. <laughs> not that she's not a great-looking woman, but, but this is not her. Uh, we split up when I was newly sober. And, uh, you know, I had two boys, four and six years old, and it was tough. It was tough. But I remember thinking that her looks would bring me some sort of satisfaction. You know, always looking for something outside of yourself to make yourself feel better. And what would happen is we'd be out at the bars and other guys liked her too, see. And then I got a problem. 
because I'm insecure, I don't get along with her, this guy's talking to her. Now there's a real problem with us. And I'm trying to control her and manipulate her and keep her out of those situations and you'll put the guy down when he leaves to use the bathroom or something. You know, anything to try and solve your problem, see, outside of yourself. And then, of course, the more you try and control the person, the more they pull away. And it has exactly the opposite effect of what I wanted to have. You know, I wouldn't even bring her out to the bars after a while because it was such a hassle, see, for me. Isn't that something? Yeah, try and control things. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. She pull away, and then pretty soon you lose the relationship because of the way you're acting, see. And you have no idea what's going on. Well, these are things, this is the way it was with my relationships and with my life. And it's devastating. It's devastating. So that's the way my relationship with Pam was. Uh, and, you know, her and I are good friends today. It took a while to clean that mess up. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really relatively close to her. I mean, she gives me birthday cards on my birthday. She's remarried. Uh, you know, we, uh, I go over to her, her house for Christmas and things like that and for, for birthdays for the kids and that sort of thing. And, and it's never been a problem. Her and I have always been really decent with each other. And I'll tell you, it wasn't that way at first. I had to work at that a bit. I had to start doing what I said I was going to do when I said I'd be there, that sort of thing. I had to start, I had to pay child support. I don't understand cheating people on child support. It makes no sense to me. Okay? I know a lot of us do that crap, you know, because of the anger, because of the judgments. Bad idea. All you got is trouble when you start doing that sort of thing. I didn't have these problems with her. She was good with me. In fact, I, I've gotten to a point where a few years ago I was going to Mexico with one of my buddies and her and her husband came along. <laughs> you can attain that. That's, that's real. That's a possibility. You don't have to have strained relationships with these people. When I changed, the whole game changed. The whole game changed. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I want to tell you what, what happened to me with sobriety because this is what's important to me today. I, uh, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there were a lot of things that led up to me coming in that I, I was trying to get my family back. I was trying to get Pam and the kids to come back, and she was, she, she was, we were really strained. This was right at the end of my using. And I'm trying to go to an outpatient treatment program with no interest in stopping. I just want my stuff back. I want my family back. I want my house back. I lost the house we were living in, 50 grand in equity in one property, lost it in a foreclosure. Losing a business. I had a business in downtown Minneapolis called Chicago Supply Company, antique plumbing fixtures. We used to buy and sell anything, and guys are trafficking heroin and cocaine and speed from the West Coast. They're selling it through my place, see. So now I got the pimps and the pornography and the prostitutes and the whole thing's in my store. Nice, nice scene, you know. And Pam's trying to raise a family with a lunatic, with an absolute madman. You know, can you imagine? I can't understand why I got trouble. You know, our phones are tapped. There's all kinds of craziness going on. So I'm trying to get my family back because we're strained. There's trouble. And I go to an outpatient treatment program, and I'm a madman. I'm absolutely out of, out of touch with reality. I'm not outpatient material. I need to be locked off the streets is what, you know. And, I, and, I, and we used to do a lot of illegal things because you do illegal things when you're with this crowd, see. And we used to make, guys needed new identities, and we'd make up birth certificates. And I had an impression stamp, and I could stamp them, and I wanted Social Security cards to go with it. So after a treatment center group, I'd go across the street to a Social Security office with the intention of planting records in their files. And it's just, I don't even want to tell the story. It's so absurd, but... I, while I was in there, 
burglarizing this place, the police came and I went up in the ceiling and hid from them for two and a half days. Okay? It got my attention. Okay? I was 35 years old. I've lost my family. I've lost my house. I've lost my money. I'm losing my business. That's on its way out. And it looks like I'm going to go to prison for a long time. See, not an uncommon position, but this one got my attention because I realized something that people had said to me for years. You're out of control. Now, why does a guy got to go to this level before he can see it? I, I don't know. Some people can see it earlier. I couldn't. I just simply wasn't willing to give up. I couldn't give up. I was solving my problems, and every time I solved a problem, it got worse. It didn't get better. You ever had that experience? <laughs> Literally. And I'm a militant atheist. I don't believe in God. I was raised as a teenager by a friend of my dad's who was a communist. These guys were labor organizers, and I got all these communist, atheistic ideas. Man, oh man, oh man, you know. You're going you're gonna to solve your problems. When good things happen to you, I take the credit. When bad things happen to me, I give you the credit. That's the way this atheist operated, see. This is tough. This is the mind I had to deal with, see. But I saw very clearly that I was out of control and that it was only a matter of time, even if I got out of this jam, that I was going to go to prison for a long time. I knew it. I could not not do the things I was doing. I had no choice. I had lost the power of choice, not only in drink, as it says on page 24, but in whether I do the things I was doing. I was out of control, and I saw it for the first time in that ceiling. <laughs> I got out of there, and I went into a treatment center, hiding out from the cops, of course, that sort of thing, and I went in there, and three weeks in, and I come off a lot of withdrawals, and it was a bad deal, see. And I'm lying in a bed one night, and I'm thinking about my life, and it's a mess, and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to prison on this deal, and I got lots of fears. I'm just at a bottom. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking my house is gone. I lost all my money. I lost the, my family. Pam took the kids and left. Everything's a mess. And I said, I'll do anything not to live like this again. And I meant anything. There were no conditions on this. I said, I'll do anything. No conditions. As soon as I said it, I started to have an experience. I'm a militant atheist and I have this happen to me. It's like somebody plugged me into a light socket. Rushes going through my body from head to toe. I'm looking up at the ceiling in a bed like this. I feel these waves of it. It's just like, just like electricity going through me. I feel this peace come over me with a sense that everything will be okay if you just stick to the commitment you just made, meaning I'll do anything. Now, the nothing was okay. Everything was a mess. But I knew it was true. I get two words in my head that just about flipped me right out of the bed. Jesus Christ. And I said, oh, no, not me. No. I got so many judgments against these. These are not terms that are in my mind. I don't think this way. And I said, no. It was way beyond what I could handle. I just couldn't take it. I said, no, and when I said it and I pushed it out of my mind, the experience ended. I knew something significant happened to me. that day. I didn't know what it was. But I do today. I've never had trouble staying sober since that moment. 
the compulsion was removed, and it was shut off like a switch. That happened in uh, September of 87, and it's never come back, and it's simply gone. So AA, when I walked into AA, I didn't have to do a lot of AA. See, I could go to one meeting a week, and I got a bunch of guys hanging around me from AA that I've met, and I like these guys. I like the men and the relationships, so we're, they're going to help me move this antique plumbing store. It's the only thing I got left. You know, so I'm going to move. This is unbelievable. I've already moved it twice. It takes you three and a half months in each direction to move this stuff. It's absolutely absurd to even consider once, let alone a third time. See, <laughs> I moved it into a place, got in trouble with the landlord when I was using and had to move it right back out. I was moving for eight and a half months, solid. <laughs> this is the kind of life I had going on, see. Everything's done with great enthusiasm. You get right at it, you know. It's not a bad way to go, by the way, because if you're going down the wrong road, you'll get to a place where you'll have to change in a hurry. You won't be playing it safe on the fence. Might as well get with it with enthusiasm. That's my, that's my, that's my advice to anybody who isn't done drinking. Get a bigger glass. Really. you know, Because nobody stops until they can't stand it anymore. And that's true with character defects, too, by the way. I, you know, you've got to be ready. So this is the problem I've had, see. So... I, uh, you know, I, I, I come, I, AA has never looked like a program of not drinking. It just hasn't. And I got some AA people around me, and I'm getting more and more uncomfortable as I stay sober because I'm not doing anything. And I don't mean this is a long time. This happened in my first few weeks, probably two months of sobriety. And I'm getting more and more uncomfortable as time goes on, and I know i got to do something with this anger because I'm rageful. I'm flying off the handle at the drop of a hat. I can't control myself in, in, in situations in my life. I mean, I'm ready. I'm at the guy's throat with my hands around his throat like that. And I don't have control of this, see? So it's not like you can say, well, let's stop and think about it, Rick. I am just out of control. As soon as I get angry, I go berserk. I just do. Just go berserk. It's unbelievable. So i got to deal with this stuff. I'm getting so uncomfortable in sobriety and I tell you what, I ended up, I looked at the fourth step, not because I wanted to work a program, not because I was trying to be a good AA member. I could not stand the conflicts. So I had no choice but to get involved in the AA book. And I looked at other forms of four steps. You know, it's really sad what's happened around our fellowship. And I, I think it's our own fault, by the way. You know, we've turned this over to treatment centers, a lot of this sort of thing. See, because we're lazy. We've been lazy about this sort of thing, see? Maybe because I don't really know what I'm doing. Well, the best way to learn it is to teach it to somebody else. That's what I found. Start sharing it with somebody else, and it'll wake you up. That's the thing that's happened to me. So, you know, the fourth step, I, I tell you, I, a good analogy of this. A friend of mine, we do these inventory workshops around the clubs and stuff in Minneapolis and around the area. And... Uh, He's a musician. He played music, uh, and he's, he wrote a lot of music over the years. And, and Bob is uh, uh, a great, great talent. He was writing a music score for the Guthrie Theater. And he got the play. He, he's doing the play. They got the music going. The director's got the players all going. And he says to Bob, the director, the producer, he says, I'm going out east for six weeks, and we'll be, I'll be back. And Bob says, well, why do you have to come back? You got everything going, the, the play's moving along, everything's fine. He says, why do you come back? He says, to take out the improvements that were made when I was gone. You see what happens? You see, 
<laughs> the actors start to improve their roles, and pretty soon he comes back in six weeks, the play doesn't resemble what he's set in motion. <laughs> this has happened to our program. This has happened to Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's our own fault. It literally has happened. We've turned it over to treatment centers who don't understand the fourth step. It's come out as a sin list and all. No wonder nobody wants to do an inventory. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to do an inventory either if, if, if you're going to write all the terrible things you did. You know, it's, it's crazy. No wonder we're... It, wow, you know, we're not growing as a fellowship, I hate to tell you. Two million people worldwide. It's been that way for about 30 years. In fact, somebody told me a couple weeks ago we were losing ground on that one. So it's, it's pretty interesting what's happened. Now, I had a transformative experience with the inventory. Now, if a guy can have a transformative experience, he won't have to drink again. That's the key to this whole thing. So I'm reading the family afterwards, chapter, chapter 9, and in there I'm reading what they did in their families, and I wanted to get my family back, and I didn't want to lose my family, and I didn't want to lose my children, and I was... I was very, uh, I had a lot of moralities around this, see. Now, I would like to tell you that the reason I tried so hard to, and manipulated Pam and tried to control her to get her to come back was because I loved her and cared about her so much and the children. That's true. It's true. I did. But there was another side of this that was interesting that I saw years later. I had tremendous resentment toward my dad for what he did to his family when I was a kid. And I didn't want to do to my family what my dad did to his, so I'd have done anything to get her back because I knew those judgments would come on me. I don't know how I knew it, but I knew it. So I was very manipulative and controlling and pushy with her. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was another element to that that I didn't see till a long time later through inventory. So... I've had to take a look at this stuff. And I opened the big book and I started reading chapter 5. You know, in chapter 5 it says, uh, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. What does that mean? I'll try these ideas. I'll practice these ideas in my life. I'll apply it to my life. Regardless of what I think about them, I'll try it. So who are these people who won't stay sober? Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. You know how I heard that? Honest with everybody else. I did. I, honest to God. I, I'm sorry to report that, but it's true. And I'll tell you what I've realized over the years. i got lots of company on that. <laughs> honest with everybody else. Then you set out, I set out to become rigorously, rigidly honest with others. You know what I realized? I can be very honest with you and very dishonest with myself. I didn't know that. And if somebody would have said it to me, I'd have said, you're crazy. I don't lie to myself. I lie to other people. That wasn't news. But I, don't, I tell myself the truth how little I'd looked. You know what I realized? We're talking about self-deception if you get into this a little further. See, Self-deception. And I would say to a guy who said that to me, I don't have self-deception. What are you talking about? And I'd say, how do you know? How do you know? Isn't self-deception the guy who's got it don't know it? <laughs> you don't know you got it until you get past it. And then you look back on a situation and go, oh, well, now I see I was wrong. You ever been wrong when you were sure you were right? <laughs> I was drinking with a guy one time in my living room, just me and him. He was a friend of a friend. I didn't know him well. I just met him that day. I was probably 19 years old when this happened. 
Next day, I'm out 20 bucks. That's like 100 bucks today. It was a lot of money to me at the time. I thought, this guy ripped me off. No question about it. We didn't buy food. We didn't order anything. We didn't leave the house. I'm out this money. So I called up people who knew him. I said, this guy ripped me off. What do you know about him? Nobody knew him real well for some reason. A couple months went by. I found my money. I hid it somewhere when I was drunk. (laughs) Forgot where I put it. So clearly I'm wrong, and I was sure I was right. Everything pointed to me being right, and here it is, I'm clearly wrong. Well, if I've had an experience like that where I've been wrong when I was sure I was right, how many things could I be wrong about right now as I stand here? You ever thought about that? I could be wrong about a lot of things. I might be living under the illusion I'm right, and I just haven't found out yet. Why do I bring this up? This is the essence of inventory in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's about getting honest with yourself. Because I, I, I was very dishonest. I was telling myself stories to justify my anger. And, you know, that's what the inventory becomes. See, you know, they go on. It, it's kind of interesting because they say selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Really? I never would have thought of that. Never my wildest dreams. Yet I'd been told I was selfish all my life. I didn't know what the word meant. I think my dad thought he was getting through to me somehow, but I didn't understand what the words meant. So I looked the word selfish up in the dictionary, and this is what Webster said. Concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. Seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. That's what it said at the end, without regard for others. So AA couldn't possibly be a selfish program. That's absurd. Because the whole purpose of AA is to have concern for others, see? And that's what it said. So I'm always looking for an advantage, some pleasure, some well-being. And in achieving that, I'm not concerned in how I get that, how it affects you. Now, it's not that I don't care about other people. I did care about other people. I didn't even consider them. Did you see the difference? I didn't even consider them. Why? Because I'm concerned excessively and exclusively with what I want. And I get this tunnel vision, and when I'm after it, people get caught up in the craziness, and when I get what I want, you're going to lose something. And what happens is people react to that selfishness. That's why selfishness is the problem, see? And then I'd look at their reaction. And, of course, look at the way they're treating me, see? And they are treating me badly. They're avoiding me. They're aggressively getting in my face because I'm enthusiastic when I do it. I'm not just sort of selfish. I do it with enthusiasm. And i got no awareness I'm like this at all. So people are reacting. They're avoiding me. They're in my face, sometimes physically Maybe they gossip about me, all kinds of things. And then I look at them and I think, what a bunch of jerks. Look at the way they're treating me. And they are treating me badly. And then I get my friend, Bob, and I tell him the story in just the right way so Bob will agree with me. You know how you do that, don't you? You exaggerate certain points, you minimize other points, so you get the story just right so they'll agree with you, and then we hate you together. Yeah. That's why selfishness is the problem you end up with resentment if you're selfish, see? And I did it with enthusiasm. So I had unconditional hate. I hated everybody. And it looked reasonable. And it looked like it was their fault. And I felt like I had no uh, 
It had nothing to do with me. It was all them. And I'm telling you, the circumstances of my life proved it out to me in many ways over and over and over. Selfishness is the problem. This amazed me when I started to see it. See, The problem is I ended up with a lot of resentment. And the resentment hurts me, not the guy I'm angry at. It's like looking at my dad and saying, well, dad, I see what a jerk you've been to me all my life. I think I'll hold negative thoughts in my mind and hurt myself. Well, that's brilliant, isn't it? I'll show you I'll kill me. It's unbelievable. The insanity of the human mind and its ability to destroy itself is absolutely phenomenal in my mind. I have seen this in myself over and over and over. Literally destroying myself because I'm angry at you. You know, selfishness is really something. It's, it's harder to see. You know, I ended up in Al-Anon. I got in Al-Anon three months sober. Okay? And, and, you know, you might, well, why do you go to Al-Anon? Well, I go to AA to keep from committing suicide and Al-Anon to keep from committing murder. How's that? <laughs> that sums it up pretty good, I'll tell you that, you know. But, <laughs> but I want to tell you how, why this is every bit as true in Al-Anon as it is in AA. Think of it this way, and I read this as a quote from a guy. He says, each time you seek to change another, ask yourself this. Boy, you can do this in sponsorship, too. Each time you seek to change another, ask yourself this. What will be served by this change? My pride, my pleasure, or my profit? See, I want something when I want you to change. If I didn't want something, I wouldn't push at you. And if you catch yourself doing that, we call that sponsorship. It's kind of sad, actually, you know. But, you know, we manipulate people and push at them and hammer on them to get them sober. And the guy ain't interested. He ain't interested. I want him to sober up more than he wants to sober up. I got caught with this early on. I had to look at this. Get aggressive and mean-spirited with your 12-step work. Oh, yeah, I've done it all with enthusiasm. Trust me, you know. I was a big pain, I'll guarantee you. There was a period where I got real smart. That's when I was particularly dangerous because I thought I knew something, see. You know what's happened to me as I've gone along? I'm getting dumber as I go along, not smarter. And, you know, that's progress, believe it or not. I wouldn't have thought that at first, but I'm telling you, when you're around a while, you start to see progress is not knowing. Thinking you know is a real problem for an aggressive guy and an enthusiastic guy because you'll beat people over the head with the big book and trying to, oh, yeah. Oh, all for the good. They should sober up. Well, you Alanons understand this, certainly, right? Sure. So, so it's, uh, it's interesting when you start looking at this stuff. Selfishness is a little more hidden in that fellowship than it is here. It's a little harder to see, but it's every bit as much there. I know. I've been in there for 19 years. So it's, uh, huh. well, I, uh, you know, th- these are things that have been very difficult for me. You know, Bills goes on, he says, Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. There's the problem. There's the formula for how to fail at life. I step on the toes of others and they retaliate. Then I look at their retaliation as if they're attacking me, and then I justify my anger based on the, the way they're treating me. And it looks perfectly reasonable. Anytime I get angry now, I look for the selfishness. Where is it? What is it I want from this situation? What am I trying to get? I heard it all my life. What goes around comes around. What you sow, you reap. What you give, you'll receive. I heard it all my life. 
Nice sentiment, I thought. Why would I be a thief? I'd been a thief all my life. I'm taking material things. Why would a guy steal if he knew he was going to receive what he was giving? If you're taking from life, you're going to lose. Well, you might say, well, I'm not a thief. Well, how about in relationships? Do I go into relationships to get something? Do I, do I stay in You know, I want to get to know the woman who can support me or the man who's got a lot of money, who can take care of me, that sort of thing, see? I'm a thief then. Do I stay in relationships long after they should have been gone? You know, because you're afraid to be alone, you like the sex. You don't even really like her anymore or him. You just like parts of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Might maybe a little too much. <laughs> I've had to look at this stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I'm telling you, I needed to look at this stuff because I was full of anger in my relationships. And you know what? If you look for the selfishness, you'll see that you want something. And what I realize is we're all a bunch of thieves when it comes right down to it. We take from life. And you know what really amazed me? Is I got sober and I was sober a while and I looked at it and I thought, my God, I took and took and took until I had nothing left. Well, you'd think you'd have something, wouldn't you? If you're taking, you'd think you'd have something. Uh-uh. I had nothing left. It was all gone. I had no relationships. My family was gone. My money was gone. My business was gone. Everything was stripped from me. And I'm standing there, finally, in Alcoholics Anonymous with nothing left. And I don't know what the heck happened. Where did it all go? I was taking and I was losing. See, the problem for a guy like me is this logical mind that says you gain by taking. You steal a material thing, you seem to have gained something. But I'd always lose it. Somehow, something would happen, somebody... One time I stole a bunch of stuff, had it in my dad's garage. He come back from his AA meeting at 10 o'clock at night. The police were in his garage hauling all my stolen stuff away. I thought I gained something. Now it's gone. Years later, I had my own garage. I had a three-car garage now. And I filled that up with a bunch of oxygen and acetylene torches and tanks and things I stole when I was using. And I had five sets of two-stage air cold regulators. I mean, this is nice stuff. I stole all this stuff, see. And I'm, I'm, I got it all in carts. I got five sets all ready to go. I'll be darned if somebody didn't burglarize my garage and steal all my stolen stuff. <laughs> you think you gain, but it's gone again. You manipulate her to come back one more time and she leaves again because nothing's changed. The same guy's there. See, can't hang on to anything. I took and took and took until I had nothing left. Wow. This will destroy you. And, and I didn't see it. See, I've been particularly stupid in this area. I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of the way I've been. I've been mean-spirited around and aggressively against spirituality. I mean, you know, I, a militant atheist, Jehovah Witness, had come to the door and I'd come on in, we'll talk, you know. And I'd start hammering on them, you know. I'm not proud of it. I'm telling you, ten minutes with me and you'd be running down the block, man. <laughs> Aggressive enthusiastic. You can use your enthusiasm to either hurt yourself or help yourself. What I've learned, and I mean this very sincerely, what I've learned out of the last 19 years of being here is how to not hurt myself. That's what I've learned. Everything else has been about unlearning.
It's been all about undoing, not doing. It's been about letting go, not addition. It's subtraction. And I realized the more I subtracted, the more my spirituality emerged. I didn't have to do something to be spiritual. I had to undo something to be spiritual. I was covering my spirituality with the negative, angry, bitter thinking. So it wasn't about doing at all. It was about undoing. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do good works or anything like that. You just have to let go of what you're not and what will emerge is what you are. It's like with problems. You ever think about problems? I, I could not solve my problems. I got to a point where I couldn't solve my problems. You know what I realized a problem is? My need to solve it. <laughs> Dead serious. I mean that. You look at it and see if it isn't true. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. If I didn't have a need to solve the problem, I wouldn't have the problem. My need to solve it is what the problem is. And you know what's happened to me? I don't have any problems anymore. <laughs> they come, I look at them, and I don't pick them up and start massaging them. Just let them go, and they'll go away. Don't play with it in your thoughts. It's absolutely true for me. I mean, I'm not, this is not funny for me in a sense. I mean this very literally it's true. And you must know it's true too or you wouldn't be laughing about it. I'm telling you, your car breaks down, that's a problem. Another guy wouldn't even look at it. You get on a bus, doesn't even have a car, don't need a car. I need a car, I got a problem. It's my need to solve that problem that causes me to have the problem. So these are things that I've had to, tried to, had to deal with. You know, I, uh, uh, I, I want to tell you, I, I, wanna, I just want to give you a little bit of what happened with my dad. Because I got sober, I had to deal with that relationship. And I hated this man for all of my life, except my early childhood, before I started listening to people. See, before I started listening to how bad my childhood was, I was having fun, I was excited, I was happy. Then they started in and I went, great, that's great news. Now I got great justification for my contempt and my judgments. And I watched a lot of TV shows, Leave it to Beaver, you know. So I had role models for my dad. And if he doesn't live up to my expectations, I'm going to hate him. You ever thought about that? I hate people for my expectations of them. It has nothing to do with them, really. It's all my judgments and my expectations, and that's why I hate people. They don't live up to my demands. See, But, you know, people who see themselves as whole don't make demands. So it's only when you see yourself as lacking that you make demands on other people. See, We do it in relationships all the time. I'm going to get you to satisfy me somehow. Oh, man, what a failure that'll be in a relationship. You know how I learned how to love? Grizzly Adams. Yeah. I was watching Grizzly Adams when I was a kid. I'm serious. The mountain man with the big beard and the bear, and he's walking out in the field with the bear, and, the, and somebody comes up to him and says, Hey, Grizzly, meaning the man, why don't you tie the bear up? And he says, If the bear don't want to be here, I don't want to keep him. Ooh. You know, that rang in me as a kid. And I remembered it years later after I got sober. Can I do that in relationships? Hey, if Pam don't want to be here, I don't want to keep her. Why would I want to keep somebody who doesn't want to be with me? Why would I want? Because I'm selfish. Because I want what I want. Because I'm afraid to be alone. There it is. There it is. If she don't want to be here, I don't want to keep her. Now, people think that that isn't love. That is love. That is love. That's the truest form of it. Leave people be, and they'll want to be around you. But if you push at them, you'll drive them right away, and then you'll blame them for it. See, that's what I did with Pam. 
exactly what I did. So I had this relationship with my dad. I had to deal with it, see. And I got expectations of him, and I got demands on him. And I started taking inventory, like the big book says, you know. Write down your story you tell yourself that justifies your anger. They give you three columns on page 65. That's just a story. It's a four-column inventory. There's another column in the middle of page 67 where you ask yourself some questions, putting out of your mind the wrongs they did. You ask God to help you see it differently first. That's important. God, I need to see this differently. Now I put out of my mind the wrongs others had done and look for where I made mistakes in that relationship. And the, the questions are where the mistakes are. Where had I been selfish in my relationship? Where had I been dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? See, you've got to put out of your mind the wrongs others had done or you keep justifying why you did what you did by what they did. That's what I had to stop doing. So they ask you to write your story down first. You've got to know what your story is to see if it's accurate because they knew there's a tendency to exaggerate certain points and minimize other points to justify your anger, see? They knew this. So this inventory comes out this way where you first write your story down and then ask the right questions, asking God to help you see it differently. That's, that's literally how simple it, it basically is, see? When I did this with my dad, you know what I saw? I saw that I hadn't even talked to the man in 15 years. He didn't want to talk to me. I was a lunatic. I, the only time I called him was to get me out of jail. You know, sugar daddy. And blame him for why I'm in jail. You know, like it's your fault I'm in here. Angry. Nice, huh? So he had told me, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You want help? I'll help you. He was sober for 20 years. He says, I'll help you if you want help, but I'm not bailing you out anymore. See, I'm done. I've had it. So I was hurt by that. I was angry. You know, you should have all that crap, the expectations you got, see. So I start looking at inventory through these columns. And you know what I realized as time went on and I, and I did this inventory? I hadn't talked to him in 15 years. last five years of my using, I made choices and decisions and my life fell apart. I lost my family. I lost my business. I lost my house. I lost everything I valued, almost my freedom. And when my life fell apart, I'm still that five-year-old kid giving the problem to my brother. Oh, it's my childhood. It's the events of my life. It's not the events. The events were over a long time ago. It's how I think about the events that are causing me pain. It has nothing to do with the event. It's gone. Who's hurting me now? Me. So I rehearse this crap, cause myself pain, and blame you. Isn't that something? I saw through the illusion of it. I was writing inventory, and I saw, my God, I hadn't talked to my dad in 15 years. I made choices and decisions. My life fell apart, and then I blamed him for it. Then I poured energy into hating him for what I did to myself. Nice, huh? And I do it with enthusiasm, you see. <laughs> I hate him for what I did to myself. Who are you hating? Me. Who are you going to forgive when you lift the energy off of hating somebody for ruining your life? Yourself. You know, the Lord's Prayer says it perfectly. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You can't get it till you give it. My judgment of my dad was my judgment of myself. I hated him for all my mistakes. Unbelievable. I saw it. I saw it. That's all that mattered was I saw through the story. I didn't see that I was bad. You know what I saw taking inventory? I was wrong. The stories I told myself weren't accurate. And if your stories aren't accurate, your anger is not justified. And if your anger is not justified, how are you going to stay angry? That's literally what happened to me through inventory. So I sat down and I wrote my dad a letter. And I thanked him for staying sober from the time I was 11 hoping I could walk in his shoes in recovery rather than insanity like I had. And I let somebody read that letter because I didn't trust myself. And the guy who read it looked at me and said, send it. 
Don't change a word. The anger was gone. Lifelong resentment was changed through inventory. And it was gone and it's never come back. You know, that's how an atheist comes to believe. I took actions I didn't believe in and got results I couldn't deny. That's what's happened to me here. I took actions that made no sense and the results I couldn't explain away. And even an atheist has trouble explaining it away after a while because you realize, my God, I'm not doing this. Somebody's helping me and I don't know what's going on. My life got to be very mystical. This all happened within the first few months of my sobriety. So this letter, I'm going to read that my dad sent me back. I sent that letter off. I get this back from him. I didn't know a lot about this. This is a man who never talked of his emotions. This is a man who swept his alcoholism under a rug. If you've done that, talk to your family. I'm telling you, my brother Bill was extremely angry at my dad for not talking to him and acknowledging that something happened. It's like somebody coming up to you and who does something to you, and the next time you see them, maybe they gossip about you, and the next time they see you, they act like nothing happened. It's irritating, okay? And in the big book, they ask us to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. See, that's the key. That's, and so I did that with Pam, and I couldn't get her to come back. I mean, we had trouble. So I got this problem with my dad, and I, I write this letter. And the reason I wrote this letter to him and thanked him for staying sober from the time I was 11, hoping I could walk in his shoes in recovery, I wrote that letter, told him I'd make any, any financial amends, whatever I owed him, I'd clean it up. And, uh, and I did that because I felt bad about the way I'd been treating him. I'd been treating him for 20 years at least, based negatively, gossiping about him, sarcastic to... Anybody who'd listen, siblings, I did this for years based on a story that wasn't accurate. I felt terrible about that, so I wrote him that letter. And this is what I got back. I think I got time to do this, don't I? Five minutes, anyway. It says, it's dated February 25th, 1988. I got sober September 4th, 87. So all this happened within four or five months. Dear Rick, I got your very welcome letter today. Believe me, it was a very wonderful expression of your feelings and your desire and courage to change your life around. I know how difficult it is to turn 180 degrees, but I know you can do it. You are going about it in the right way. I am very proud of you. Wow, that's a guy who never talked this way. You know, Rick, we people in AA never get through making amends to people we have hurt. I have hurt you as well as my other kids. I can never complete making amends. There are some people I can never make amends to because they are gone. I can never make amends to your mother as I should have. See the regrets he's got here? 20 years sober with this. I can never make amends to my mother as I should have. I just have to do the next best thing, and that is to work this AA program the best I can and constantly try to put into practice those seven little words of Step 12, practice these principles in all our affairs. Rick, you have made amends to me in a way you'll never realize. Just keep on doing things as you are now doing, and you will find a great life ahead of you. I do realize when I got well, he didn't feel guilty. You know, parents feel guilty. They feel responsible for their kids. They come into Al-Anon. I go to Al-Anon every week, once a week. I've been there for 19 years. And parents are coming in all the time because they're guilty. Oh, if I'd have just done that different, if I wouldn't have done that, if I, oh, and they're remorseful. And, all. and I look at them and I say, well, I'll tell you what. If you think you can screw them up, why don't you just fix them then? 
Well, you should be able to fix them, shouldn't you? They know they can't, see. He says, your mother loved all you kids very much, but you must remember that she was very sick from the booze and was not responsible for her insane behavior. She was sick. But your mother was a very good mother. She nursed you kids through your sick spells many times, and she kept you clean and healthy. Now, it's interesting how this letter coincided with my letter and the timing of this meeting. He says, I was to an AA meeting last night. I heard someone say how they had feelings of guilt about someone they had failed to try to help, and it brought back memories of my own guilt feelings. See, I didn't know about this now. He says, I had promised Bill, my brother who died, I was going to try to get some woman at the club to see her, but I kept putting it off until it was too late. So I have had my share of guilt feelings. I have to use that serenity prayer a lot. Sad, isn't it? You know? I want to thank you for your wonderful letter. You owe me nothing. I am very happy to hear how well you are doing. Your mother would be very happy for you. This is making amends too. I'm enclosing a couple of cards for you and Pam to carry. It's a very special poem for me. I sometimes pass them out when I speak at AA meetings down here in Florida. I think the meaning is very good. That's the man in the glass. Remember that little card? Yeah. Don't worry about living up to anybody's expectations. You've just got to be okay with yourself. And AA does this so well with inventory. They really do. You decide what's acceptable to you through inventory. This will be all for now, Rick. Greet Pam for me and also Austin and Wyatt. Love to all of you and keep the faith, Dad. My brother Bill died wanting this kind of a letter from my dad. He never got it. You know the difference between Bill and I? He didn't write the first letter. I took inventory and I cleaned up my mess. And I, and I wrote that first letter. I didn't expect this to come back. I had no expectation of this whatsoever. None. I wrote it because I felt bad about the way I'd been treating him based on a story that wasn't even accurate. You know, I had a missed a relationship with this guy. You know, for the last 20 years, we'd had, we've had a relationship. I do a meeting at the Union Gospel Mission every th- Tuesday, and I've been taking him over there with me for probably five years now. And he's getting so old now, he's 96 years old. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, we talk back and forth. We're driving back and forth. And we talk about, he tells me stories of his childhood and things that happened to him. And, man, it's just, I'd have missed all that. Why? Over a story that wasn't even accurate because I wouldn't, be honest with myself, I wouldn't take inventory, that's what it would have been. I'd have stayed resentful. But because I resolved those conflicts, I could have a relationship with him. If he dies tomorrow, I'm okay with him. We're okay with each other. When, you, when somebody dies and you got a lot of heartache, it's because there's unfinished business. That's what it is. Always it's that way. Boy, there's nothing worse than having something like that happen. So, I just want to close with this, this short paragraph out of a member's eye view of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a wonderful pamphlet if you haven't seen it. He, he, this man says what I hope I've been trying to say. I hope it's come through. He says, There must come a day, it seems to me, when every alcoholic, in or out of AA, finally sits down in the presence of his enemies. That's what you do in a fourth step. You sit down in the presence of your grievances. See? When he does, he will be amazed to discover that he is attending a meeting of one, himself. The day the alcoholic in AA realizes that his enemy is within, that the tigers are largely creatures of his own design and lurk in his own unconscious, 
That is the day when for him AA becomes what I believe its founders meant it to be, a flight into reality. Wow, how much reality do I see today? I don't know. You know, the world is much more pleasant for me. It's softer, it's gentle, it's not attacking me. You know what the difference is? I quit attacking it. I, if you don't like what you're getting, take a look at what you're giving. See, the promises came true for me right away. 90% of the, probably 75 to 90% of the promises come true just going out and putting a meeting on at a prison and doing some 12-step work. You will feel great. And I'm telling you, you won't regret your past or wish to shut the door on it. No matter how far down the scale you've gone, you'll see how your experience can benefit others. They all come true just doing 12-step work almost. It's astonishing. But you know, it's one of the hardest things to get people to do is to get active and do something. I did it because it worked, not because I was trying to be good or noble or work a program. It made me feel better. So, uh, you know, I thank... I want to thank the committee. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I, it's no problem for me to go anywhere on short notice. I couldn't care less because this is my life. This is what I do. I'd have nothing without 8A. I wouldn't have her in my life. I wouldn't have anything. I'd be dead probably. That's the difference between my brother Bill and me. The difference is inventory, and that's what altered me, and I've never been the same since. So thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.